0: and I pray and then we'll look at this passage. Father, we we say thank you for all these lives that we get to look at um, through um, the gospel accounts um, and how Jesus interacts with them. And I pray you give us wisdom and insight and uh, that your spirit would challenge us and fill us with um, both joy and um, excitement for what our lives could be like if if we could see how Jesus treats us uh, the same uh, as he does people like Peter. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're picking back up on a series that we started back in November called The Great Physician. And in this series, we're we're riffing off uh, an old book by one of my favorite authors, G. Campbell Morgan. And um, what he did, and so what we're doing, is we're looking through the New Testament books about the life of Jesus to see how it is that he treated individuals. Uh, how, How did he deal with people as he came across them? And what we hope to get out of this series is a sense of how it is that Jesus Christ treats you. How does he deal with you, with your faults, with your virtues, uh, with your weaknesses, with your strengths? How does he deal with you? Um, And the thought is that if we can see just how it is that Jesus deals with individual after individual throughout the New Testament, that we might gain an understanding of how he deals with us. Uh, Maybe you didn't realize that he deals with you individually. Did you realize that? That to Jesus Christ, you're not just another face in a vast crowd of humanity, but that he deals specifically with you. You matter to him. And because of that, not only does he deal with humanity as a whole, because he does, but he deals with you individually. And today we're looking at the apostle Peter, or I should say the man who became the Apostle Peter. And how did Jesus deal with him? How did he treat him? What was his method with Peter to see Peter's life be renewed? Uh, For Peter, uh, what Jesus did, he actually helped Peter answer the question, Who am I? Who am I? Uh, You know, you get the sense as you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that every time Peter shows up, he's actually trying to answer this question for himself, Who am I? He, He wants to know who he is. And it's a good question because if we know the answer... We can live with a clear sense of purpose, a clear sense of identity, of right and wrong. If we can answer that question, we can actually live with a lot less anxiety. We could be freed from things like depression. And so let's look at the way that Jesus deals with Peter to see if we can get a sense for how Jesus deals with us. Um, But before we get to Peter, there's a much more modern character that we need to talk about. I guess he's not that modern. This film is about 20 years old now, but Derek Zoolander. You know, at the start of the film, Zoolander, he knows exactly who he is. He's the number one male model in the world. He's got the look. Well, he has one look. He's got all the friends. He's got all the money. Uh, He's at the top of the game in the male model community. But then something comes along. Hansel He's so hot right now. (laughs) Hansel comes along. And Hansel's got everything that Zoolander has and more. And so here's what happens to Zoolander. All of a sudden, Zoolander's on the outside and Hansel's the the number one guy. And Zoolander is left asking this question when all of his friends reject him, when nobody wants to hire him anymore. You find him outside of a club looking at a puddle on the ground and he looks in the puddle, he sees his reflection and he just says, who am I? It's a stupid movie, but it's a really profound question. It actually deals with a really profound question, and in a very real sense, we are always trying to answer that same question for ourselves. You know, with every job interview we have, we want it because we want to be able to introduce ourselves and say to people, well, I'm so-and-so, and this is what my title is. Or we want to be able to say that, oh, I booked this job or this role on that film or that show. We want to, we want to be able to say to people who we are by the things that we do, or, or maybe it's the kind of food that you eat or that you don't eat. Or maybe it's, you know, every date or connection made through an app. We're actually saying who we are in these things. Every trip to the Americana or the Grove or Nordstrom Rack or Ross or, you know, Goodwill, whatever it is, we're, all, we're always trying to answer that question. Every show that you watch, every item that you buy, every ad that you click on is an attempt to try to answer the question, who am I? And by the way, every show that you watch online, every item that you buy online, every, every ad that you click on, it actually results in someone or someone controlling an ag- algorithm actually attempting to tell you who you are. Because Netflix says, hey, you watched this show, so that means you're the kind of person who would like to watch this one. Amazon says, you bought this, and so therefore you're the kind of person who would buy this because other people who bought what you bought bought this. Now, what all of this is telling us is that we actually live in an age where... There's no transcendence. There's, there's this, this world and what we can see and what we can feel and what we can touch. That's all there is. There's nothing beyond that. And so we're only looking at the things that are imminent, the things that are near to us to find our meaning, our purpose in life. And so our jobs become what tell us who we are. Our relationships become what tell us who we are. Our clothing, our, the food that we eat, our sexual orientation. Everything has now become an opportunity to say, this is who I am it becomes the personal defining purpose of your life. Now there's one philosopher who actually says that living in a world like that is like living in a world that has no second floor. What you see, what's here, that's all there is. There's nothing beyond what you see. In other words, there's nothing above us, nothing beyond us, nothing bigger than us, nothing with more authority than the individual. And if that's true, then, then there's nothing bigger with more authority, with more wisdom with more knowledge, with more power, with more love. There's nothing like that to appeal to for your purpose in life. In the end, it becomes nothing bigger than your own self to answer Derek Zoolander's question, who am I? And you're stuck like him just looking at your own reflection in the mirror trying to find an answer. And so therefore, everything that we do in our whole world is set up to be this way, that everything that you now do is a mission to find, to achieve, to confirm your purpose in this life. And so it's no wonder if that's how our society is, that there is a collective anxiety and depression across the entirety of Western culture, especially in a place like Los Angeles, where everything in our culture seems to be about proving to others who you are, or at least who you want them to think that you are. And that is exhausting. I don't know if you're tired from that, but I am. But one of the central things that Christianity does in the life of a person is actually give them a purpose, actually give them a meaning, actually give them a central theme for their life. In other words, one of the central questions that Christianity answers for a person is who am I? And that is no more obvious than in the life of Peter as he meets and follows Jesus Christ. So let's look at the life of Peter. Uh, three headings here. Number one, Jesus Christ sees in you what no one else sees. Number two, Jesus Christ sticks with you when no one else would. And number three, Jesus does both of those things so that you can become exactly who he says you will. In other words, he sticks with you. He sees in you what no one else sees in order that he can give you a, a central purpose, and meaning for life. So let's look at these. First, Jesus Christ sees in you what no one else sees. And I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but one of my favorite literary lines of all time is the first line of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And it goes like this. His name is Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. It's a great line. Because in that line, you know everything about Eustace Clarence Scrubb. Like, you, you read that line, and you're like, yeah, he's that cousin that I hated growing up because he was just always getting me in trouble. He's that kid in the class who's always sticking his nose in places where it didn't belong, right? You know who this kid is. Well, this is the Apostle Peter when Jesus meets him. Uh, You get the sense when you read through the Gospel accounts that if you met a young Peter, you would not like him very much. He's also the most inquisitive of all the disciples. He's recorded as asking more questions than any of the other disciples, which on the one hand is good, but on the other hand is like, yeah, okay, he is that annoying guy. But when Jesus meets him, by the way, did you notice his name isn't Peter? His name is Simon. Look at it again in our text. Jesus, uh, John 1, verse 42, Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You'll be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. And we'll get to the name thing in a minute. But first notice that it says that Jesus looked at him. Now, the word there in the original language for looked is a very specific word for looking. It's not the normal word used in the New Testament. The normal word uh, is used about 133 times in the entirety of the New Testament. This word, the word that John uses here to describe the look that Jesus gave to Peter, is used only 11 times in the whole New Testament. And so this is a special kind of look. It, it, It actually means to look intently or to see clearly. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan puts it this way. He says, the sense of it might be expressed by reading it not he looked upon him, but he looked through him. So this wasn't a mere glance. It was an intentional look of investigation. In other words, Jesus saw Simon. He knew him when he saw him. And we know Jesus' intentional look at him uh, led to a specific knowledge because look at what he says. He looked at him, looked through him. And he said, you are Simon, son of John. And when he says this, he's telling him, in effect, I know you. I know who you are. You are Simon, son of John. I know your family. I know your background. I know you. But that's not even the shocking thing here. I mean, that's amazing in and of itself. But the really shocking thing in this verse is not that Jesus looks intently at Simon and knows who he is. It's that in spite of knowing who he is. He sees something in him that nobody else sees. A potential in him that nobody else sees. And this is where the new name comes in. So, why give Simon a new name? What's wrong with his old name? Well, name changes, they're actually pretty common throughout the Bible. Uh, Abram becomes Abraham. Jacob becomes Israel. Saul becomes Paul. With each of those name changes, Uh, there begins to be a new purpose, a new theme for the life of the person whose name has been changed. And so throughout the Old Testament and in the culture that Jesus lives in, a name is everything. A person's name revealed their character, their personality, even their destiny. And so to change a person's name was to give them a new purpose, a new reason for existence, a new theme for life. And Jesus does this immediately when he meets Simon. So he looks at him intently, sees through him, he knows immediately that he's a Eustace Clarence scrub, he knows it, and he gives him a new name. Uh, This actually happened to me once, but it wasn't to give me a new identity, it was to highlight the shortcomings of my current identity. Uh, When I was in high school, I played on the basketball team, and let's just say I was not very fast at anything. I was always the last one when we did sprints up and down the floor, I was always the last one to finish the warm-up laps around the gym. When I caught the ball, it was like "Mm -hmm." And so my teammates gave me uh, the the name Sloth. And it definitely described who I was, Uh, but it wasn't an aspirational name. Uh, it didn't make me a better player. It probably made me a worse player. If they wanted to make me a better player, they should have called me the Flash. But Jesus doesn't give Peter a name like sloth. Instead, he gives him that aspirational name, a, a name that reveals his calling, a name that explains the central theme for his life. Look at it again, John one forty-two. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Now, both Cephas and Peter mean rock. Cephas is in Aramaic and Peter is in Greek. Now, the thing about Peter is almost every other opportunity that he's given in the Bible to speak, to say something, he does. He can't help himself. Words just fall out of his mouth. And usually when he does speak, he doesn't just put his foot in his mouth, but his entire leg. But look at this. In this instance, he doesn't say anything. He's silent. He doesn't say a word. And the only reason I can think that he doesn't say a word is that he's just astonished. Because what is a rock but something solid, something dependable? And here is Simon. And as you quickly learn reading on, he's anything but dependable. He's anything but solid. He's anything but what his new namesake is. He's not Peter. He's Mr. Undependable. And yet when Jesus renames him, in other words, when he gives him a purpose, a meaning, a theme for his life, he names him Rock. And the extraordinary thing about this story is not that Jesus could see him, but that he sees him. And when he does, he sees something in him that no one else saw. He saw a potential in Peter that Peter himself probably didn't even see. That with Jesus walking alongside of him and one day the Holy Spirit living in him, he can become rock. And so what we see in this interaction between Jesus and Peter is that Jesus' method with Peter is to see something in him that nobody else sees. To believe in the possibilities of this man when no one else, or likely even Peter himself, didn't believe in them. Jesus looked at this man and saw not only how undependable, how unrock like he was in the present, but he saw all the way past that to the future, to a purpose, to a theme for his life that nobody else saw. And I don't know about you, but I read this story and I long for Jesus to give me a new name, a purpose for life, some theme that I can center my whole life around. And don't you want that? in your prayer time later this evening, Jesus would be like, hey, here's your new name. Well, here's the thing he did. He has a new name for me, and if you're a Christian, he has a new name for you. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is dictating a letter to the church in ancient Pergamum, and in it he says that to all who are victorious... In other words, to all those who are found trusting in Christ until the end, he says, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that every Christian has a new name. Put it another way, every Christian has a purpose, a theme for life given to you by Jesus Christ himself. And even if you don't know today what that new name is, what this is saying is that one day when you see him face to face, he will say to you, this is your name and it will all make sense to you. And here's the point. Jesus Christ sees in you a purpose for life, a meaning for life, a theme for life that you probably don't even see for yourself. But to get it, to live it, we've got to look beyond only what is imminent, only what is around us. To get this theme for life to answer the question, who am I? We have to recognize that to this universe, this reality that we live in, there's a second floor. There's a transcendent God who is ultimate, who is the ultimate authority, who is ultimate wisdom, who is ultimate love. And when we look to him for our purpose, for our meaning in life, he's the one who gives it. And that alone is what will free you from the anxiety or the fear of answering the question, who am I? It will free you of constantly having to prove to others that you're a certain kind of person, always having to show your virtue to other people, wearing it out for everyone to see. And when Peter meets Jesus Christ, he meets the one, the only one who can give him a purpose in life. Because Jesus Christ in him alone is God in the flesh. Only he has the authority to do that. Which means I cannot possibly tell you what your specific purpose in life is. I wish I could. But God alone can do that. But I do know in a general sense from the Bible what the general purpose of a Christian's life is to be. Or Put it another way, several identities, several themes to your life that every Christian should possess. That if you possess these things, if you live out these themes, it will give you a meaning, a real meaning in your life. And here they are. Number one, you are a son or a daughter to an eternally loving father. That is the very central thing about you. If you are a Christian, the most central thing about you is that you are a son or a daughter to an eternally loving father. Number two, you are a brother or sister to eternally loved siblings. And so that love that you receive from the father, you pour out to those eternally loved siblings who are around you. But number three You are a messenger to an eternally loved humanity that will never know they're loved unless you tell them. And if you can live out those three identities, I promise you it will give you a purpose for life, no matter your income. No matter your family, no matter your relationship status, no matter your job, no matter your house, no matter which neighborhood you live in, no matter what you wear, no matter what you eat or don't eat, and so on and so forth. Now, it'd be great if when Jesus renamed Peter, he got it immediately. And uh, the the next verse said, and so then uh, Peter became a dependable disciple. And then when the church got started, he was Mr. Dependable Apostle. It would be great if that's how the story went, but it's not. Which leads us then to point two. So the first thing is that Jesus sees in you what no one else sees. The second point is Jesus Christ sticks with you when no one else would. Now, do you remember that word from earlier when Jesus looked intently at Peter? Well, that word is actually used a second time to describe Jesus looking at Peter If you're a math person, that means about 20% of the time that word is used is for Jesus looking at Peter. Only this time, it was the moment of Peter's greatest failure. And we always want people to look at us in our moments of great triumph, of success. We never want people to see us in our moments of failure. And because I thought about my nickname on the basketball team, it brought up another uh, basketball story from when I was in high school. I'm wearing it all out here for you guys. Um, Mr. Sloth uh, was playing in a game, and uh, we're playing in this tournament, and because it was a tournament, there was like, our game was happening on the main center court, but there were other games happening on other basketball courts around, and our game went into overtime, which meant the people who were showing up to watch the next game on the court that we were on, they started to come in, and then when the other games finished, they're like, hey, that sounds like a good game, I'll go and watch that. Well, we went in not to just one overtime, but we went into two overtimes. And so now people are, everyone's coming. Then we get to the third overtime. We're just trading points back and forth, back and forth. We're at the third overtime. There are now thousands of eyes watching us on this center court. And uh, there's, with about 30 seconds to go, I ended up, um, I tipped the ball away. And here's the sloth, uh, Mr. Uncoordinated Sloth dribbling down, I'm right handed with my left hand on the left side and I'm gonna go make a left hand layup. And if I make this layup, we win the game and thousands of people cheer, everyone cries. The NBA calls me and says, skip college and just come on in. And so here I come and I'm I'm dribbling down my left hand and I, I know that everyone is gonna catch me because I'm the sloth. And so I'm coming down and I go to make a left hand layup. The easiest shot in basketball is a layup. And I throw the ball out and I hit, not the rim, the bottom of the backboard. And then I trip and fall and roll across the floor. Thousands of eyes intently looking, watching, anticipating this as this is the one that would win it after three overtimes. We won the game by the way, but it was in the fourth overtime. I had no part in that part. (laughs) In Peter's case, though, it it wasn't thousands of eyes looking intently at him. It was just two. And it was the only two eyes that mattered. Towards the end of his life, Jesus predicted that Peter would deny knowing him. And Peter, of course, protested that he would never do that. But when Jesus is arrested and he's on trial, three different people come up to Peter and they accuse him of being a follower of Jesus. And two times he says, no, 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 I don't know the man. I don't know him. And it's at this moment that Jesus gives this second intent look at Peter. So here it is in Luke chapter 22, verse 61. The third person has now just accused him of being a follower of Jesus. Verse 60, actually. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And so here is Peter, the one who Jesus said would become the rock. And here he is falling apart like a tower of sand. And it's here in Luke twenty-two sixty-one that that word shows up again. Jesus turned and looked straight through him. And for this, Peter should be disqualified. How could he continue to be a disciple, let alone be the rock? How could he be the one who Jesus said at one point, you're going to hold the keys to the kingdom of heaven? He hit the bottom of the backboard and fell down. And yet in the very last chapter of John's gospel, we come to the last interaction between Jesus and Peter. Jesus, at this point now, has been raised from the dead, and he actually made breakfast for the disciples on the side of a lake. And after breakfast, he has a conversation with Peter. Now, have a look at this conversation. Notice, by the way, what Jesus calls Peter each time. This is John 21. It should be on the screen for you. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these I notice all three times he calls him by his old name, Simon, son of John. Now, what is happening here? What's going on here? Well, Jesus is reinstating Peter. Why does he ask him three times if he loves him? Why does he say to him each time, okay, then feed my lambs, feed my sheep, look out, shepherd my sheep. Well, how many times... Why does he ask him three times? Well, how many times did Peter deny Jesus that night in the temple courts? And so Jesus asking three times if he loves him is a reversal of Peter's three times denial. And then Jesus gives Peter a little foreshadowing of the kind of death Peter will die, and it's going to be a death much like Jesus' own death on the cross. But then he says something to him that should give us goosebumps, not the bad kind, like when you're scared, but the good kind, like at the end of an episode of This Is Us. Look at what Jesus says to Peter in verse 19. Then he said to him, follow me. Follow me is what Jesus said to each of the disciples when he first called them to be disciples. With these two words, he says to Peter, you're in. I'm sticking with you. Jesus is sticking with Peter even when no one else would. Even after denying Jesus and Jesus' moment of greatest need, Jesus looked right at him. And he made, as he made his third and final dwelling, he looks right at him while it's happening. And after all of that, Jesus sticks with Peter. Now, of course, in Peter, we can very easily see something of ourselves. And yet, look at the method of Jesus with Peter. He sticks by him even when he failed. Have you failed recently? Last week? Last night? This morning? Think of the worst thing you've ever done. Jesus sticks with Peter. Jesus sticks with you. Now, How can he possibly do that? How can he stick with Peter? How can he stick with you? Well, it's because he stuck it out on the cross. Over in Matthew's gospel, it actually records people standing around the cross while Jesus is hanging there dying. And they say to him, hey, if you really are the son of God... If you really can do miracles, why don't you just come down off the cross? Prove it to us, they say. And of course, he could have done that. But instead, he proves he is the Son of God in another way. He actually proves it by staying up on the cross and dying. And then three days later, rising from the dead. He stays on the cross in order to die for men like Peter who he hadn't reinstated yet, by the way. He stayed on the cross for people like you and me who deny Jesus in our thoughts and our words and our deeds dozens and dozens of times a day. But why? Why die for us like that? Well, it's so that in the end, we can become exactly who he said we would become. And this is Point three. Jesus does both of these things. He sees in us what no one else sees, and he sticks with us when no one else would so that you can become exactly who he says you will. In other words, he does it so that you'll fulfill a great purpose in your life. And so you see the cross of Jesus Christ is the moment where instead of you being held accountable for all of your denials of Jesus, of all the ways that you've sinned, instead of you being held accountable, the cross is the moment where Jesus Christ is held accountable for you. The cross, then, is how Jesus is able to forgive Peter, and it's how Jesus is able to forgive you. It's also, by the way, how he's able, just like he gave Peter a new name, to give you a new name. Because you see, it's only after the cross, after being reinstated, after receiving the Holy Spirit, that Peter is finally able to begin to live up to his name. Peter goes on to be the rock for the Church of Christ for the rest of his life. He's present at the center of every major milestone of the Church for the next several years. And so Jesus sees in Peter what no one else sees. He gives him a defining purpose, a theme for his life. He sticks with Peter even when nobody else would. But because of both of those things, Peter then becomes the rock for the early Church. And the same is true for any Christian. That only after coming to grips with your need for the cross of Christ, only after being reinstated by Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit, can we be given a new name and begin to live up to that name. But of course, to do any of that, we must come to grips with the fact that there is a second floor to this universe that we live in. That there is a true God in heaven who is greater than all of us a transcendent God of love and power of righteousness and authority who revealed himself on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is only in him that we can find this ultimate purpose for our lives, only in him that we find a new name, if you will. And so if you're looking for a purpose in life, a major theme, if you're looking for it in your work or in a relationship or in having a family or in your your virtuousness or in your style or in whatever it is. If you only look for it there, you will be led to despair and anxiety because none of those things are transcendent. None of those things have enough to give you a true purpose in life. Only Jesus Christ, the actual transcendent one who came down from heaven, only he can give you that. And so as we close, let me give you a challenge and a warning that comes from living a life where Jesus gives you your purpose. And uh, the challenge and the warning, they're both the same thing. So if you look at the life of Peter as an example, you could also look at the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John. You could look at people like Philip and Stephen in the book of Acts, and you'll see the same challenge, the same warning come up. A life where you get your purpose from Jesus Christ means this. Here's the challenge of the morning. You will be asked over and over and over and over and over and over and over over again to give up your needs, your wants, and your preferences for the sake of others. I don't know what specific purpose in life Jesus has given or will give you, but one thing I know both from the pages of Scripture and from life experiences, that in order to fulfill that purpose, whatever it might be, you will be asked over and over and over and over again to give up your needs, to give up your wants, and to give up your preferences for the sake of other people. And that is both a warning, because if you get started in that, it's very hard. It's very challenging. It's extremely difficult. But it's also a challenge... To become the kind of person who is willing to give up your needs, wants, and preferences for the sake of others. And the only way you do that is by doing it today, and doing it again tomorrow, and doing it again the next day, and again the next day, and again the next day. And eventually you find that you've become the kind of person who's willing to give up your needs, your wants, and your preferences for the sake of others. And so you may not see in yourself the kind of person who's willing to live a life like that. But remember, Jesus sees in you what no one else sees. And so Jesus sees in you the ability to become that kind of person. And only in Jesus are you able to find this final definitive answer to the question, who am I? And so listen, no matter the purpose God has for your life, know, know this. Jesus Christ sees in you what no one else sees. He sticks with you what no one else would. And he does both of those things so that you can become exactly who he says you will. In other words, he does it so that you can have a greater purpose, a central thing for your life. And if all of that's true, then we have to pray and ask him for help. So let's do that. Our Father, we need your help if we are going to live this way. Uh, we do not have the strength to live this way. Peter clearly didn't. He needed the Holy Spirit to come into his life. And so, Lord, we ask for your help to live this way, that you would give us a clear purpose, a clear meaning in life, and that out of it we would learn what it is to, to serve others, to, to be willing to give up our, our needs and our wants and our preferences for the sake of others. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.